Welcome to episode 517 with my return guest, Dr. Jess Leveth. She's also a buddy of mine, known her for a long time. Very, very happy to have her back on. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room with better magazines. <laughs> I have no magazines. I think I have one hockey magazine. Uh, let's kick things off with a happy moment. Um, actually, this is this was a comment at the end of a happy moment uh, filled out by Brule, who uh, identifies as non-binary. And they wrote, in your last episode with Rich, uh, relationship drama, a point was brought up about a therapist mentioning that the emotionally abusive person should have been a, quote, prostitute by now, considering her history of sexual abuse and BPD. I wish you had addressed that comment as harmful. There's a correlation between sex work and childhood sexual trauma, but I don't think it should be seen as a disastrous outcome for people who have experienced such trauma. Sex work is often liberating and helpful for, for people with sexual trauma, and the therapist who originally made that statement was out of line and their view is outdated and prejudiced. Sex work isn't a consequence. It is often a conscious choice that helps traumatized individuals reclaim their sexuality. It shouldn't be demonized. I wish you had advocated for sex workers after hearing that comment, although I understand how it was contextually contextually brought up it should have been addressed thank you for sharing that and yeah when um he did quote his therapist as having said that um there was a part of me that wanted to jump in and and say because uh say what you just said uh, in fact one of the earliest episodes that we did of this podcast was with a woman who uh was a sex worker I might even still be. I haven't talked to her in a long time. But um, she didn't need the money to do it. Uh, she had uh, boundaries around what she would and wouldn't do, who she would take as clients. She wouldn't take married men as clients. And uh, for her, it was uh, something that was enjoyable, not something that was a choice uh, economically forced upon her. But thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself not a creep, I promise. She writes, I love taking breaks during my work day to masturbate. Seriously, I know this sounds creepy, but in these shitty, scary times, it is one little joy that I'm hugely grateful for. It's a natural way to release tension and relax when everything gets to be too much. I'm a 40-year-old woman just realizing this. I'm guessing most guys have known it their whole lives. I'm so grateful to know it now. Now that I work from home, when the stress gets to be too much, I can have a private moment on my lunch hour, then have a cool drink in the sunlight from my window, which is cracked to just let a little crisp air in, and it's just the best thing ever. Then I get back to work at 1 o'clock in a much better mental place and smiling to myself because I have this little secret that no one else in the business meeting knows. I would bet you half of them just got just got onto Zoom from having a good wank. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a trans woman uh, who calls uh, herself Samara. 
and about her depression. She writes, uh, it's depression not otherwise specified. Depression is a comforting parasite protecting me from feeling anything while it feeds on my soul, slowly devouring all joy, emotion, and life until a husk remains. About her ADD, like my mind is playing musical chairs at 500% speed, and the one that gets left out is the task I was supposed to do 10 minutes ago. Oh, that is Hall of Fame awesome. Thank you for that one. About uh, her gender dysphoria, the easy part was accepting myself. The hard part is making society accept me. Those are great. Thank you. Uh, this is the same survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as Tristan about their depression. My highs are other people's lows. Wow. About their anxiety, everyone has discovered exactly why they should hate me, and when I'm myself out in the world, they see me as my true mangled inner Voldemort under a bench. About uh, their PTSD, sex will never be the same, never feel pure, I will never be present in my body. About being an abuser, I was a child and yet I feel culpable. I feel evil. I feel completely responsible for the detriment of their lives, even though I was a child perpetuating my abuse. Thank you for those and sending you some some love. Uh, that That is a hard thing for people to wrestle with, people that did stuff as children. And, you know, you said it. You were... You were a child, and yet you feel culpable, um, even though you were perpetuating stuff that was done to you. It, it's. I hope you can find some peace around that and forgive yourself. Um, this is from the Love Survey, just a simple one filled out by a guy named Paul. Uh, nailing the final Jeopardy question, especially when all the other contestants get it wrong. Oh, man, that would be a smug-ass moment to experience. I don't think I have ever, not only do I think I've never gotten the final Jeopardy question, I definitely have never gotten it with uh, nobody else getting it. One of our sponsors for today, as always, is the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Um, if you're interested in checking it out, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Uh, make sure you include the slash metal part uh, so they know you came from this podcast and hopefully continue to advertise with us. Um, when you get to the website, just fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they feel like is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. Uh, they are Their therapists are licensed in all 50 states, and they have a huge variety of uh, expertise, and I'm, I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. been using it for, for years, and my therapist, Donna, is awesome. Uh, also, you need to be over 18. If you're not 18, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com and you can get the ball rolling uh, over there. Uh, and then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Lena. One of my best friends died from a heroin overdose in 2019. A couple months after the memorial, I hung out with his mother, who he had always bad-mouthed, so I kind of had a low opinion of her. This ended up being a misunderstanding. We were sharing stories about my friend, her son, and I told her a story about how he, quote, saved my life. When I was 21, I took LSD for the first and only time. 
The friend I was with gave me too much and I started freaking out. I called the police, vomited rainbows, the sky cracked open, and I screamed for God to take me. The friend I was with called Jared, my now deceased friend, to help. I hadn't met him before. He drunk drove to my house and made me snort Xanax off a textbook in his car. I threw up inside his car, but everyone piled in the vehicle and proceeded to drive around like parents do to soothe the child to sleep. I don't remember this part, but apparently I was crying in the car asking, will anyone ever buy my paintings? To which my friends assured me that my paintings would sell. Kicker, I don't paint. About nine months before Jared died, he told me he was on his way to a booty call before he was beckoned to save my ass. As I told this story to his mom, we laughed through our tears, and I had made a friend. We painted rocks and left them at his grave for his birthday this year. He would have been 32. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Well, Maybe listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs> I am here with my buddy, who I've known for, God, probably <laughs> nine, ten years. Uh, longer, longer than that. Longer, wow. We're, t- we're talking 15 at this really? point. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. oh, my God. Oh, my God. Here with Jess Leveth, who is a certified uh, sex addiction therapist. Um, it's it's such an interesting topic. You've done your clinician, and you've also done quite a bit of research on it. So many things I want to pick your brain about. Where where would be a good place to to start? Is, is there any particular focus or passion that you have within that topic? Yeah. So uh, funny enough, I think the perfect place to start would actually be that I am a certified sex therapist. Um, it's not a sex addiction therapist. Those are two different things. Oh, they are. Yes, because for fifteen years, about. I was very steeped in the addiction model and the 12-step model, and that is the most popular by far model. It's what most people know. People don't usually know that there's any other alternative to working with problematic sexual behavior, and I found that out in graduate school. Um, and really just dove into it. And, and so the, the model I currently work with that I absolutely uh, have found my home in is um, out-of-control sexual behavior. It is a sexual health-focused model on working with problematic sexual behaviors. Well, then let's start with what are some of the signs of uh, out-of-control sexual behavior. Obviously, a lot of them would be obvious, but you know, at the risk of uh, sounding obvious, <laughs> let's let's cover the checklist if there if there is one. 
Yeah, so this, uh, I think it's just one of the big fundamental differences. With the sex addiction model, they have so many ways that you could say, oh, check these seven signs, or seven out of 10, or three out of 10, and you could be a sex addict. Well, that is a lot of people. Um, and so the way that the OCSB model, which is what I, it's just the acronym, um, the way that that works is it, it asks you, are you having, are you struggling with out of control sexual urges, thoughts, and behaviors? And you get to decide um, what those are. Do you, how do you quantify out of control? Well, does it feel out of control for the person coming in, right? Um, so now- Coming into your office, you mean? Coming into my office. So it, it is a lot more nuanced, the way that I work. Um, it is a lot less um, prescriptive, um, meaning um, I'm not going to assign something as problematic for you unless you're feeling that it's problematic. Now, I understand um, that a lot of partners of people with problematic behaviors and parents and people who love and care for people with problematic behaviors will say, well, what if they don't think they have a problem, right? And to that, I would say, if they don't think they have a problem, they could go to these retreat centers and walk out of it and not be phased right and not and not have the recovery that they think they're going to have that you think they're going to have you know the person has to come to a place the person struggling has to come to a place of understanding that they are in conflict with their own value system it is a it's just it's an internal conflict around you know who you are and how you're acting you know and what you're feeling and thinking well, then let's talk about the most obvious one that even people who are emotionally and sexually intelligent and educated struggle mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. which is sexual fantasy. You yeah. know, so many people, the, the thing that pushes their button that they need to, to orgasm is something oftentimes that they are... Um, that causes them anxiety or that they're morally against you know, outside of fantasy. Yep. Talk that, about that. Absolutely. Uh, that, that is called, um, so what gets you off primarily is called your core erotic theme. There's an amazing book written by a guy named Jack Morin. The Erotic Mind. Great the, book. Yes. And yeah. so, you know, um, he comes from a sexual health perspective and he says, you know, that, eroticism is really about, um, I think that the formula that I think Esther Perel uses this formula, right? Where, where it's like, um, arousal obstacle equals eroticism, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, whatever your core erotic theme is, whatever it was that in your sexological ecosystem growing up really fused for you and does it for you. If you are having an erotic conflict around that, you know, this, this conflict within yourself about what is getting you off. Just because you have a conflict with it doesn't mean you're going to be able to change it. I work with this all the time, right? Um, now, there are ways to work with developing psychological flexibility around it. You know, what, does that you, what does that mean? So if you are, if you have this one fixation 
and, and you're just trying to excise it, you're trying to get rid of it, that is only going to make it stronger. That is only going to drive it deeper into the shame and into, you know, it's going to empower it. Now, if you were to breathe space around that and say, develop other things that might turn you on, you are loosening that a little bit. You are widening your spectrum of what could be getting you off so that you're not, this isn't your only go-to, Okay. you know, and you're also dealing with the shame around it in, in session. So let's say somebody has something that gets them off and they've tried that mm-hmm. and nothing is working and you know they're they have to go to this thing what what then do you try in in working with them I would probably get them into a group of some kind that normalizes their experience so that they don't feel so alone Right. So, so you t- kind of tackle the shame first. I, I, I will always be working with the shame because, you know, and I don't throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think everything about the essay program is horrible. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I think there have been some very positive things and developments. Uh, by, um, by essay, uh, you mean Sex Addicts Anonymous? Right. Okay. Right. Right. Um, a, you know, Patrick Carnes and, and the whole... ITAP, they have brought to the surface. And what is ITAP? um, What is the uh, acronym? It's international. um, It's it's something about the trauma professionals. (laughs) I wish I knew. ITTAP or IITAP. Okay. Okay. Um, And and what they talk about a lot is it's in the shame, right? And and the shame builds this. That's the gasoline that that fuels the... Uh, compulsive behavior, which is true for a lot of addictions. Alcoholism, drug addiction mm-hmm. is the, the the vicious cycle of I feel shame. I need to get rid of the shame. I'm going to numb myself and add yeah. infinitum. Okay. Um, and I also want to just, I want to throw out there that the model I'm working with, um, I'm not saying that if you're working with the essay program and it's working for you to leave it, you know, this is what I'm trying to do is just provide an alternative for if what you're doing, you're finding, if you're finding that your recovery is not looking like other people and you're having shame around that, you know, there is implicit judgment in the rooms, you know, there can be. And judgment of, well, you know, that's not sober, you know, you're masturbating, that's not sober, you know, and that's not necessarily true, you know, and so I'm, the, the lens that I'm providing is, is really trying to focus on inclusiveness of all kinds of sexualities, Mm -hmm. you know, but also I think what differentiates this model from other models is that um, other models dealing with problematic sexual behavior sometimes um, conflate non-consensual behaviors with out-of-control sexual behaviors. Out-of-control sexual behaviors by definition are behaviors that are um, out-of-control thoughts, feelings, urges, behaviors, and non-consensual is a completely different ball game. It, it, it is behaviors that not everyone is consenting to. Those are crimes. 
and those need to be treated differently. Those need to be treated with specialists. But wouldn't they also fall under the umbrella of out-of-control sexual behavior? Absolutely. Okay. They would be out-of-control sexual behavior, but I do not treat that. And you have to be, well, you sh should be specialized in those behaviors. It is a completely, that is a legal thing, you know, mm -hmm. that is a difference. And I think that sometimes if you're, if, if you're saying one out-of-control, it's degenerative, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's going downhill. Um, and if you keep acting out, you're going to slip into these um, non-consensual behaviors. That's, you know, that, that is. That there is, should be shame there. <laughs> <laughs> right. A, there should be shame there. Um, but, but also, I don't think that's true. I think if you had that desire within you, it may be activated. But that really is a different thing to be treating. So that would be different if that was the fantasy that got you off and you were role playing with a consenting partner or thinking about it when you were masturbating. Right. That is not a fantasy is not inherently um, problematic unless it's problematic for you. Now, we could be talking about some serious, you know, um, what would be considered non-consensual behaviors like, um, you know, pedophilia, right? People who fantasize about younger, younger people and... Illegally younger people. Right. And so if someone, for instance, were to come to me and say, this is, um, this is a template of mine. I have many colleagues who work with this, but I personally do not feel like it's within my competency, competency level. I, I just, um, to deal with somebody who is acting out as a pedophile or whose fantasies are pedophilic. Well, if he's acting out as a pedophile and, re and lets me know, I have to report it immediately. Right. You know, do you do it by shining the Batman signal into the sky? <laughs> I do not. Um, I, I, I give the person on the other end of the line every opportunity to make a choice about what they are disclosing to me in that phone call so that they get to make a choice um, about, you know, whether or not I'm, I mean, I have to report at a certain point. So I stop people very quickly mm -hmm. when they start heading in that direction. And I say, I want you to understand that if you say this to me, I have to, by law, report this. Right. And here are some specialists. Right. And, and those are for the behaviors, not the thoughts. Those are for the behaviors. And for the thoughts themselves, you know, it's something where it's very edgy. And I feel like, you know, if they have no desire whatsoever of acting out these thoughts, I might be open to having a discussion. But honestly, I feel like they would get more support um, that they needed from colleagues of mine. Mm -hmm. you know, that really study this and, and look at it from a human being perspective. You know? What does that mean? Well, you know, there it's, again, this is one of those areas that is highly, highly like flammable, mm -hmm. right? And so- In terms of people's opinions, both professional opinion, and non-professional. Right. Okay. I mean, within this profession, it is highly flammable. Um, and, you know, there are some people that- are really wanting to come from a lens of these are human beings, 
you know, and something has uh, something, either it's innate, either it's epigenetic, either it's, you know, within their own template that it was laid down early on, you know, for whatever reason, this person is having this feeling they haven't acted out, right? Mm -hmm. They're having these thoughts and they're human beings, you know, and, and treating them from a place of compassion. Um, Now there are other people that are so activated by these ideas um, by the concept that someone could possibly be having this kind of attraction, um, that they, there's no way they can tolerate that conversation. You're talking about a professional. I've, I've met professionals. That is so fucked up. (laughs) That is so fucked up. I mean, to me, there's such a clear distinction between fantasy and behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is so uncompassionate. You know, I'm not, I really don't, I try to reserve judgment, you know, on that. It's not my experience. I'm, I don't feel that way. You know, um, I have had to learn in my years of doing this to really just remember what is my experience and what is someone else's and to try to minimize judgment. And it's been challenging. (laughs) Yeah, but for me, the difference is is that they have a responsibility to clients. Mm -hmm. That's different than somebody on the street with a strong opinion that that lacks compassion or nuance. That, that, Mm yeah, that that really bothers me. You know, I I think when I got into this field of working with sexuality, I had come from a place of not knowing anything, you know, I grew up and was in my twenties and knew nothing about the nuances of sexuality and the human right that it is, you know, and, um, with women's sexuality in particular, you know, and trying, it's not an accusation when I say that we are trained both explicitly and implicitly, how we are sexually, you know, and um, coming in, women that come into my um, office or virtually, because um, I work with um, out of control sexual behavior with women primarily. Um, and I have taken this model um, that was created by Doug Brown Harvey and Michael Vigarito and trans- it, they, they wrote it for cisgender men. And I looked at it, thought it was amazing and thought I needed to translate it for women. And so that's what I've done. And, and so when I have women come into my office, I really have to help them. I say, everything's on the table, you know, um, your entire, everything you know and think you know about your sexuality, let's have a discussion, mm-hmm. you know? And we start to talk about what messaging might've occurred. And is that impacting what you think out of control sexual behavior is for you? I see. So it, it it might be a woman masturbating every day, which is certainly in and of itself. Uh, Fantastic. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but she was raised to think that she's a, you know, air quote slut for right. doing that. Yeah. So for even having a sexuality. Right. right. And, mm-hmm. and for men, particularly in, you know, air quote locker room chat, you know, that would be a thing of pride. Uh, you know, I jerk off every day, you know, i.e. I've got a healthy libido. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so is and- that is that kind of what the the translating uh, meant that you're you're putting it through the filter of society's uh, conditioning of what a woman's sexuality should look like? Yeah, I'm putting it through a women's consciousness lens. You know, I really, um, and I'm not saying that every woman that comes in doesn't really have OCSB. They have, you know, a societal imprint. But what I am saying is that those imprints do have an impact, right? And and they do impact how a woman sees her body, for instance. So another shift in the model is I have different, slightly different assessments that I give that are created by women, you know, about body assessments instead of body assessments by men. And so basically what I found in doing this research, and I did it, it took about two years to finish this um, because I have a small child. (laughs) And um, I found that over and over again, fundamentally women's sexuality is, has always been um, gauged next to the ideal of what a man's sexuality is, what a man's sexuality is, you know, and, um, and I want to shift that. And I think that really amazing writers have come out in recent decades around this, you know, Esther Perel, Emily Nagoski, um, just really fantastic women writers. I think, you know, uh, Brienne uh, with her, with her, Secret yeah. Life Podcast. Yeah, with the Secret Life Podcast. Just having experiences. You know, these these experiences of women have always kind of been around. They've just been on the underground, you know, like Nancy Friday's book of... Anais Nin. Yes. A, uh, a woman that I was uh, uh, in a, I guess you'd call it a relationship with in my early 20s. Uh, she was a bit older than me. I was like 23. She was 33, which is a pretty big age gap back back then, uh, certainly in terms of experience. And she gave me the, the book, it was called little birds. Uh, I I can't remember. I think that it was called little birds. Uh, and it blew my mind because most of it, if not all of it, I think were, were sexual fantasies or experiences that women had. And she wrote this in what the early 20th century, a uh, hundred years ago or mm-hmm. 80 years ago. And it, it was, uh, it was liberating for me as a man because I had always felt like, you know, men are so much more of base individuals than, than women are that, that they can't have dark fantasies, you know, et, et, et cetera, et cetera. And it, uh, it was such a great thing to, to read and to know that it was given to me by a woman who um, she was very free with the, with her sexuality. And it was, it was, in fact, at at one point I realized that she was using me, that she wasn't really (laughs) interested in what I had to say as a person. I remember one time I wanted to read her a poem I wrote and I don't think she even (laughs) did me while I was reading it. And there was a part of me that just kind of started laughing because I was like, dude, this is karma for, Mm. you know, all the objectification Mm -hmm. and using that you have done, the the Mm -hmm. disregarding the person uh, with the vagina. And yeah. uh, Yeah. You know, um, there is, (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, Paul. (laughs) Um, 
well, at least you, at least you gain some knowledge, you know? Um, yeah. And women have, they have sexually declared themselves for millennia. It's just have people paid attention, you know, and have <laughs> they, such a great way of putting it. Have they, you know, have they cared? Has it been valued? You know, mm. it's been slammed, you know, and again, these are not accusations. I, I stumbled upon being a feminist writing this. I, I, I did not know it was going to happen. I didn't even know what feminism was. Like I just, that's how, and I speak, I think that speaks to how deeply I personally was taught to ignore it. And that feminists are a very specific kind of woman, a harsh, cold, you know, bra burning, hate, man hate hating. Men. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it is, that is not how I identify um, as a feminist. And I think you can do it any way you want. Um, but I, I, I see women as having the equal value and opportunity to sexuality. You know, we get the same rights sexually as men do. You know, that sounds obvious on the surface. What are the particular struggles that have uh, kept this from evolving and, and feeling equal? What were the discoveries that you made that mm -hmm. uh, turned light bulbs on in your head? Right. Um, there are three. I'm actually going to pull up real quick my, um, my paper. So I found um, three general categories, and I'm definitely open to expanding these, but one was a right and means to control birth. So everything having to do with birth control, abortion, being able to control our own bodies and when we choose to have babies and, you know, the fear of pregnancy around sexuality, how does that impact you, right? How, uh, when you're growing up and, and your parents are constantly telling you, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, be afraid, be afraid. He just wants to, you know, have sex and you're going to get pregnant and then you'll lose your whole life, you know, things like that. Um, and then, um, the second uh, piece, hold on one second, is um, sexual functioning, appearance, and pleasure. So now we're talking sexually explicit media, right? Um, how, how are women taught to look? Everything from how their vulva is supposed to look and what color and what shape and what size and, you know, um, to their bodies, you know, and how it's impacting... I mean, you've got little kids, little kids on the internet, men and women, both men and women are being impacted by this. It's not just women, you know, but I'm talking about women. So um, there's that piece of it. There's also- um, And let's circle back to that and talk about how, how the, the ripples of that, how that affects uh, people's, uh, specifically women's. But I'd like you to also- you know, hear how it affects men's sexuality mm -hmm. uh, as well, if that was uh, totally, of... I work with men as well. You know, I, I have a particular interest in, in translating this for women, but I work with men. So I think for sexual functioning in particular, um, how many orgasms are you supposed to have? What if you don't have an orgasm? Are you supposed to have an orgasm? You know, like, there's a lot of assumption that you have sex only to have orgasm. You know, when you can have an amazingly pleasurable experience and not have an orgasm, it doesn't have to be goal-oriented. In fact, if you're having sexual function problems, 
if your functioning is, is struggling, chances are you're so in your head about, I have to give this to her, or I have to want this myself, or I have to do this in a certain time that your body is, is rising up against you and saying, hold up. Actually this, the opposite. Yeah, this doesn't feel <laughs> you're, safe. You're, you know, like I don't feel safe enough right now to, to do, to have this pleasure. Yeah. And I've experienced that. I've experienced uh, performance anxiety and it's never been something that was uh, put upon me by a partner. It was my own idea of what a man should be and that sex is pointless without an orgasm. And And it wasn't until, I don't know, the last couple of years that I realized how awesome it can be to, to say, you know, can we just be intimate, but kind of take that, the pressure of that away and it allowed me to be so much more present because I wasn't like, oh, am I going to have to go to the Rolodex of something that's going to make me come in my <laughs> head? Uh, you know, and even though my, my partner knows that occasionally I, I have to go to that actually more than occasionally, but I invite her in into what it is that I'm imagining. And that I feel like brings us closer together because she accepts that part of me, which I have always hated. Mm. Yeah. Um, that is, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Paul, that is the best thing you could do is to invite your partner into that scary, vulnerable place, you know, so that she can see you, you know? Um, I think that, um, what I have, what I have clients do is it's the basic what's called sensate focus exercise of just focusing on the temperature, the pressure and the texture of what you're feeling. If someone's touching you, if you're touching them, you know, what does it feel like? What's, what are the temp, what's the temperature, the pressure and the texture. And if you focused on that really focused and you're embodied, it's hard to be in your head at the same time. It's amazing. There's nothing that mindfulness can't help. I know it. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. And you know, for people who have struggled with trauma, the last place you want to be is in your body. And Mm -hmm. I fully, fully understand that. And I will say that the more you can train yourself little by little, having patience and compassion as you, as these feelings come up, the more you will be able to um, open that window of tolerance, you know, open that ability to sit in your body and feel what real pleasure is like. What was the third thing uh, that you discovered? Oh, thank you, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) The third piece was um, sexual and social value. So uh, this goes everything from the historical piece of, of, dowry and and ownership of women um, to now if we take a look at what's called intersectionality. Um, So intersectionality is this study of all of the different parts of you that make you you, you know, your gender, your ethnicity, race, culture, uh, money, you know, um, job, every, all of these things intersect. And it's in that intersection that everybody has their own amount of social value or what would be perceived as social value. By them or by society or both? Both. 
So, you know, you have what you think people value as, value you with or, or as, and then you have what generally society does kind of value, you know, and, and this can impact your sexuality. In other words, um, if you're um, a person with a disability uh, and, and let's say you use a wheelchair and you have, um, you're struggling with your esteem because you have this wheelchair and you don't consider yourself normal. You don't think other people consider yourself normal. You may be using your um, sexuality as a way to gain attachment, right? I see. Um, and, and so it can manifest in that. I'm not saying that all people- So turning it into currency rather than intimacy. Right. And I find that women in general that I have worked with that struggle with OCSB at some level have been struggling with this particular piece is currency, you know, because we are taught that um, very quickly, you know, as, as we grow up, oh, you're so pretty, you know, mm -hmm. oh, you know, um, you look so thin, you know, all of these messaging, uh, all of, all of these, um, all of this me messaging that really lets you know that certain qualities about you are going to be more valuable. I got you. I, I cut you off before you finished your point about um, the, the person in the wheelchair and using currency. Mm -hmm. uh, you, were, you were about to say something else. I probably fucked it up. <laughs> I was just going to say <laughs> that that is one specific example. And I do not think that all people who use wheelchairs are, you know, doing this or are using their sexuality. I think they are, Jess. <laughs> and it's the topic of my new book. <laughs> well, you know, I have to be really careful because things get taken out of context and then, yes. you know, I'll get an email. <laughs> sometimes that must be hard because Jess used to do stand up and that must be hard sometimes that you you lose that ability to uh, not be responsible uh, like you have to be as a professional in the, in the jokes <sighs> you make or the yeah. sarcasm. It's yeah. yeah. It's nauseating. I get so, um, because I, I really come from this place of do no harm or do minimal harm. And, and at the same time, I truly believe in the power of laughter you know, and in the power of humor, I have never forgotten how powerful it is, you know, and, and how in some of the darkest moments of my own life, it was only the humor where I just was like, well, how bad's this going to get, you know, and, and just bringing it to that next level that I was able to go, okay, this is the human experience. Like this, yeah. <laughs> this I is get absurd. Uh, one of the surveys we have on the podcast is called Awfulsome Moments and uh, moments that are kind of awesomely fucked up funny in hindsight, <laughs> but we're awful at the time. And some of them, uh, a lot of them share that qu quality where it gets so bad that the person laughs like, you know, touche universe. I get it. Isn't it interesting how our education and discovering who we are when we're young, we think it's going to be around accomplishments but as we get older, we realize that it's a process of eliminating what we definitely know we don't want, mm -hmm. things that we're tired of seeking or trying to be or mm -hmm. thinking that, yeah. that we should be. That's why I have two friends. 
you know, like I just, <laughs> I just don't. Um, You've eliminated the I've ones. Elimin- that, <laughs> yes. It's it, it's because it's quality, not quantity. Yes. No, I'm I'm joking. I have yeah. like four. Oh. But, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think that I went through so many. That is why I did stand up. You know, and I was doing it for reasons that I think. You know, I don't know how many people are doing it for this reason, but for me, it was, can I, will you just look at me? Will you look at me? Will you see me? Will you like me? Will you laugh at me? Will you validate and me? Will you validate me? Will you and, love me? Right. And the, the reality is that I have been told actually that I can be humorous in a small setting, but it does not translate, you know, to a big audience and it didn't work out, you know, and leaving, choosing to leave that community was so freeing for me. You know, and for years, I still felt like the pang of what if, you know, I'm watching all my friends who have their Mm -hmm. own podcasts and have like, you know, shows and stuff, but it's, it was not for me. I I heard somebody say one time in a support group meeting that I know I've made the right decision when I feel peace afterwards. And I imagine you felt peace when you decided, you know, I, I get stomach aches when I do the open mics. I, yeah, there's definitely peace there. And I tell you, I feel peace after almost every session I have, you know, when I know that I can still take, I haven't let go of humor, you know, and I still, I use it in a way that can help people heal, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I just, I love my work. It's so fun. I, I love seeing people that are passionate about what they do, especially when it, when it truly is, uh, helping people helping release them from their shame and the the bondage of self-hatred. It's, it's such an awful prison to be in. And so many people live their lives never realizing that the, the door is open. It's, it's not a prison. You're free to walk out anytime you want, but it's so scary to walk out of that, not knowing what that's going to look like. That's right. And I don't ask people to do it without having supports in place. You know, I think that can be one of the um, misunderstandings is that you just, you just walk out, you know, and hope for the best. I think it's more helpful if you can have a community around you ready to hug you, you know, Mm -hmm. or call you. To see Um, you, to mm -hmm. see you to truly see who you are and, and because those will be the people that are genuinely happy. Mm-hmm. It's really sad when you walk away from a community and no one calls you because you, you realize that it wasn't real. The, the attachments, mm-hmm. it, they weren't real, you know? Um, but I, if it's okay, I did want to go back to the, um, there was something I forgot early on in the interview and it was called, um, Competing motivations. Um, competing motivations are when you have a long-term goal of, let's say, sexual health, but then you've got these motivations that are more um, acute, um, that are just driving you, and that's the lower brain, just the you know the pleasure, the sex, the fear, the hunger, that's driving you, um, and so you've got these two competing motivations, and that is. Ultimately, um, the compo- uh, the competing motivations around personal, like self-regulation, your ability to regulate your own feelings and emotions, interpersonal 
regulation and an erotic conflict. When you get those competing, motion, those competing motivations, that is what creates the out-of-control behavior. Give me some real-life examples. Obviously, you, you know, uh, want to be respectful to clients, so maybe you could do it in a, in a generalized mm-hmm. way. But you know, all the stuff that we've talked about, I would love to hear some, some stories, mm-hmm. some success stories of issues that people came in with the things that they focused on, the things that they learned, the ways they grew, and then what their lives look like now. Well, I've worked with a lot of people from very religious backgrounds. Um, and um, the competing motivations there are any kind of sexuality um, and their community and how they grew up. And so people will come in and though they may have um, just chronic masturbation, spending, you know, multiple hours and it's blown up their marriage and um, their shame in the community. And when I look into their history, um, I see that they have never really gained any tools on how to soothe themselves. Um, there's, there tends to be a lot of shame in very rigid cultures and, And so they've got all this shame, no way to soothe it. And then very naturally as a human being, they come into contact with their sexuality. And an orgasm is quite relieving. It can be. Um, And so what ends up happening is you get this hit of the orgasm, this dopamine, um, and all of a sudden you feel peace, Mm -hmm. right? And... And then that becomes the coping, but that is in total conflict with many right. of these religions. And um, I think I think it also it's a great example uh, in terms of sexuality of the difference between seeking pleasure and escaping your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what I end up doing is working with these clients kind of at the same time with a couple of different things, I'm working with the narratives that they have around, you know, what sex is and and the judgments they have around it. Um, Validating that this is the experience they grew up in. I'm not going to shame their community. I'm not going to, you know, I'll do that for you. Their religion. (laughs) Just give me five minutes to write (laughs) up a little something. I will send them to you. Um, but, you know, I teach them regulation skills, you know, how do for, you regulate? For, for instance. For instance. Yes. For instance. Um, uh, oh, give me some examples of, of, oh. <laughs> of, yeah, of how they regulate or find ways to soothe. Um, well, I have people um, tap into their senses, right? So we've got these five senses. I have, for, uh, for an example, peppermint oil. If you put peppermint oil on your wrist, again, this is about embodiment, getting into your body. When you are fantasizing, you are dissociating in a, in, to a degree. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so if you're, if you're really focused on the sensation, like how does it land when it comes into your nose? Where do you feel it? How deeply can you feel it? And if you're focused on that, you cannot be also, you know, in this state of panic, in this state of shame, in this state of fantasy. Right. Because at that point, the fantasy is taking energy out of your life rather than being a healthy thing to explore and, you know, celebrate. 
it's correct? You, yeah, it's pulling you out of reality and it's being used as a mechanism to avoid something, right? right. Fantasy in itself is not a bad thing, right? We're talking again, if someone has come to me and told me that these fantasies are an issue, hmm. you know, I'm not going to prescribe that for them and say that, right. that that's their experience. Uh, what are some other ways? You did the peppermint oil on the wrist. Mm -hmm. uh, peppermint oil on the wrist. Um, I have people, you know, look around the room, start naming colors, reading titles of books, um, naming textures for um, touch. You know, I have, um, if you have like a little pokey ball or if you have a squishy ball, you know, focusing mm -hmm. on that um, sound. You know. And is this something that they would uh, do when they were feeling like, oh, my God, I want to act out compulsively? Or is this something that is a regimented part of their day? You know, wake up, squeeze the squishy ball, do such and such or all of the above. It has to be practiced when you are not activated. When you're activated, the front brain is going to go offline and you're not going to even remember what to do. You know, so what I have people do oftentimes is I do say practice this at least a few times a week, as much as you possibly can, and keep a, a short list of ways to tap into your body in your pocket so that if you can just remember pocket, pocket, and then you look and you've got your cheat sheet. You know, what are, what are some other ways they can help regulate, you know, do you, regulate, soothe? Mm -hmm. um, um, let's see. Ice cube. Ice cubes a really good one. I um, assume you mean the rapper inviting him over. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's such a teddy bear now, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think any way that you're going to do uh, tap into that, I think if sometimes I have people just get up and leave the room that they are in because you can go into this tunnel in your mind. And if you just change, like get up and get into your body through walking, mm -hmm. um, go running. Um, you know, right now it's so challenging because we're all stuck in our house. Yeah. Um, One of the things my therapist uh, had me do and i still sometimes do it is use just use my non-dominant hand mm -hmm. around the house because you got to be present to do that mm -hmm. that's great i like that one <laughs> i like your therapist oh she's awesome she's <laughs> awesome uh so give me some examples of issues that somebody had and what it looked like after they you know, did the work or had the revelation, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, one issue uh, I get commonly with women is a complete disconnect from their genitals. They have, they, I have met many women that cannot even feel their genitals um, because what? yes, they, 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 um, they can't feel when I say that, I mean, specifically, they can't feel um, whether or not they, they don't know what an orgasm is. They've never had it. They can't feel it. They can't, um, it's kind of just numb. You know, their genitals are just numb. Their vulva is just numb. And it, it can be a challenge to believe, but it's, it's quite true. And so, um, what I help this person to do is simultaneously working through the narrative and also doing sensate focus exercises, you know, where she is, the goal is not to have the orgasm. The goal is, can you 
be in your body while you touch yourself? You know, can you, and it's not even about having pleasure. It's about, can you feel, can you start to bring attention to your vulva and have um, any kind of experience? You know, I give them resources like OMG Yes, which is an amazing resource for women that yeah. teaches them about um, their body. Um, I give them Come As You Are, the Emily Nagoski book. Um, I give them Healing Sex, that's Stacey Haynes. Um, and that's for men and women. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are so many awesome, awesome resources out there that are really about sexual health and not just about getting rid um, of, of something that's horrible. And I will put that in quotes. So what are some of the success stories that, that you've experienced? So uh, one of the women uh, that I was working with that was really struggling to, to feel her genitals and um, she was able to feel them. And it's not like the success is, oh yeah, I had this massive orgasm and now I'm just, you know, sex, I'm just like carefree sex. She's still struggling, you know, but the success is that she's able to connect to her body, you know, and now she's starting to feel some pleasure. You know, that is success. It's not the raging orgasm. It, somebody that is experiencing that, is it usually related to some type of trauma? Um, in the experience that I've had, uh, it's usually in some way um, related to trauma. I always send the women that come to me to um, a gynecologist, you know, to, to make sure to rule out medical issues, mm -hmm. um, hormonal issues. Um, I, I really want them, the women to have the information. Yeah. And anything else that you'd like to, uh, share before we wrap up? Mm. Where can mm. people find you by the way? Mm. Um, com, And, um, I guess I would like to just share that you know, as a, a therapist, um, I have found it really important for myself to accept that I learn new things and I shift my ideas and, and what I think is appropriate for treatment. And, and I think that's really important because I try to model that for my clients when they come in. You know, I, you can have very ingrained ideas and they could have, they could be the best things that you had until the moment you learn something new, mm. you know, and that's okay. Or you could choose to keep your old knowledge. It's really like it's, but just not to hopefully be so rigid that you're boxing yourself in to a tunnel. Yeah. I'm of the belief that when you learn something new, you should tell yourself that you're an idiot. <laughs> for not knowing it sooner and for believing the previous thing because that's what I learned in Catholic grade school. Yeah, that's, that's lovely. Actually, I w was not taught that in Catholic grade school. I came <laughs> up with that on my own. That's, uh, that's how good I am at hating myself. Uh, Jess, thank you so much. Uh, I love talking to you. Uh, I love the work that you do and the, the help that you spread through um, just helping people get in touch with 
their their sexuality and more important kind of who who they are beyond that um that's mm-hmm. it's awesome thank, thank you, you for so having much me, paul my pleasure <laughs> many many thanks to jess um it's always so weird when somebody that I know becomes a doctor, whether it's a psychologist or an MD. Uh, it's just, it's always so cool just seeing them blossom into this person that helps so many people. Let's dive into some surveys. Uh, we got uh, about a half dozen shame and secret surveys and some other stuff peppered in between, but uh, some of these are a little bit on the heavy side. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy uh, who calls himself dad. What the fuck does Molly coddled mean? <laughs> I'm not your dad, and I have no idea what Molly coddled means. He uh, identifies as straight. He's in his 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say uh, it, at least that, if not totally chaotic. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. An older boy in Cub Scouts coerced me into being sexual with him. For the longest time, I never talked about it, and I didn't realize that it was actually an abuse experience until I was in my 30s. Today, I just feel angry about my not having a safe place to talk about it when it happened. He's been physically and emotionally abused. My father was an alcoholic with anger issues who could never be pleased. I never knew when he'd go off and what would trigger an explosion today. I liken it to growing up with a terrorist who only attacked my house. Oh, that is such, such a great description. A terrorist who only attacked my house. Fuck My two older brothers tormented me physically beyond the usual sibling fights. Any positive experiences with the abusers? They are my family, so yeah, and it definitely complicates things. Darkest thoughts. I think about ways I will kill myself. I visualize the rope around my neck or driving into the ocean off a boat ramp or just taking enough pills to put me to sleep while it's freezing outside and letting myself freeze to death. That and taking a baseball bat and smacking my dad with it. He's been dead for a number of years, so I can't ever do that one. Well, do you mind doing some digging? If, if if that's on the table, yeah, get a couple buddies, case of beer, some shovels, some tunes, and then uh, hitting practice on dad. Uh, darkest secrets, I have a sex addiction. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My abuse experiences so screwed up my understanding of my sexuality. I don't really know what fantasies are really powerful for me and which ones are merely my addictive self-medicating pain. Wow, what a complicated, profound statement. I don't really know what fantasies are really powerful for me and which ones are merely my addictive self-medicating pain. Is there a difference between that? I, I don't know if two different parts of us have separate fantasies. I think the thing to do is to be in acceptance that you don't have any control over what turns you on, but what you do have control over is the way that you express it. And there are, 
I believe, are ways that we can make peace with that. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my dad to go fuck himself. I'd like to finally tell my mom that, yes, she is partially to blame for all of her adult kids' mental health problems. What, if anything, do you wish for? To stop feeling suicidal and to feel okay about myself. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my therapist. So far, I keep feeling suicidal and not so okay about myself, so I have more work to do. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better, but only a little. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'd like to think it gets better. I'm not so sure, but that's what everyone keeps saying. Oh, buddy, I'm sending you some love, man, and it can't get better. It's the thing that sucks about recovering and healing is it's never on the schedule that we want it to be. It's never as graceful as we want it to be. It's never linear. It's always confusing. We're always second-guessing ourselves. But before we know it, you know, we can pause sometimes and look back and go, wow, I have changed. I have grown. I have healed. And those moments are worth all of the therapy sessions and the support groups and the journaling and all the other stuff. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself house plants are better than people. Uh, and they write, I love stopping everything to listen to rain rumble on the roof. That is a great one. That is a a really cool. I just love the I've always loved the feeling of being sheltered. This is the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a trans man who uh calls themselves O. They only filled out part of the survey, but I'm gonna read that. Uh they identify as asexual. They're in their forties. Um, I don't know why I'm saying there. He identifies as asexual. He's in his 40s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. A co-worker pinned me against the wall in the restroom and touched my genitals while assuring me that a good fuck from him would solve any confusion I was having about my gender. That sounds like a terrific co-worker. Wow. I had transitioned on the job and was starting to experience the physical changes induced by the testosterone shots. For the first time in my adult life, I had some self-confidence, and that now husband decided to take advantage of being the last to leave the office and using my stand-to-pee device at the urinal instead of using a stall. Turns out I wasn't the last person in the office. I've never been that careless again. That fucking blows that you... A person has to even worry about whether or not they're the last person in the office and who's there. Uh, he's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Um, I was the good kid, so I didn't bear the brunt of the physical abuse in my family, but I got enough. The pressure to succeed and the yelling, name-calling, and threats that went on for days afterward when we didn't were worse. Any positive experiences? It's very confusing being an adult and maintaining a relationship with my mother. That could be a t-shirt. That could be a t-shirt. Darkest thoughts. I imagine myself killing other people sometimes. 
some of the sexual things I think about that should disgust me, but don't make me, but don't make me feel ashamed. Let go of that shame, man. If you're not hurting anybody and it's not degrading your life, em- embrace it. Darkest secrets. When my younger brother was nine, I found him up in a tree trying to cut his wrist with a knife to avoid being punished again later uh, that night. I stopped him but didn't tell anyone even though I knew I should. He grew up to have a drug addiction and related life difficulties and I still feel responsible for that. You were not the person that abused him. You were not in his care or he was not in your care. You know, there's a a saying that they have in codependent support groups. You didn't create it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Imagining myself as a child being physically punished. I have mixed feelings about that. I've known it's not unique or extremely abnormal, but sometimes I worry that it will turn into something more that is not okay. That is a very, uh, very common one. And, um, you know, if it hasn't turned into something okay, uh, that's not okay, you are already in your 40s. I would say if it was, if it was going to turn into something that is not okay, it probably would have happened by now. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some with two of my therapists in the past, and they handled it appropriately. But some of the things I think about seem like a gray area, and I don't want to be put in the hospital again or make my therapist feel like they have to report me to the cops. I assume that you're talking about the suicidal ideation. You know, and from the therapists I've talked to, the, the, the difference comes down to, are you ideating about it as a way of, you know, Imagining an escape hatch, which is uh, certainly not uncommon and not something that authorities should be called about or there should be an involuntary uh, commitment to a mental health facility. But if you are actively making a plan, that is different and they are obliged by law, if that is the case, to do something about it. But there are a lot of therapists out there that are not good. I hate to say it. I think the majority are good. This is from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Paul, and he writes, I love being the only person on the elevator after a hectic morning commute to work. That is an awesome one. Just because he called himself Paul. I love any moment where the loudness dies down and it's just pure silence. Like after everybody leaves a, a party and uh, yeah, I just love any moment after everybody leaves. <laughs> this is a heavy survey and it gets a little graphic. It's a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, 926 Sunnybrook Drive. She identifies as straight. Uh, she is in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, when I was seven, I was an Indian girl living in Saudi Arabia in a culture where sexuality is taboo. I never got the, quote, talk. 
at the time, I didn't know what was happening, just that one of my teachers seemed to really like me. Considering the importance of schooling in any Indian children's lives, I didn't view being a teacher's pet as a bad thing, and the attention just seemed like something to put up with, like getting hugs from a smelly great aunt. However, I do remember feeling embarrassed by the attention. I developed very early with a noticeable chest and curves at that young age, and I knew it was something I was supposed to hide. As a third grader, I knew my parents would be upset if they found out someone was touching me in the places I was told never to speak about. The teacher touched me under the skirt of my uniform with his hands moving further and further up, and soon he was fingering me and kissing me at his desk while the other students were bent over their schoolwork. I remember being embarrassed and looking around frantically to make sure no one saw. I somehow blocked this out until high school in America when a friend shared a similar experience. When I had my first consensual kiss and when I first allowed someone to touch me, I instantly felt dirty. I hate the idea of getting fingered and yet as an adult in some fucked up way, when I let it happen, I almost felt a sense of power. Uh, It, I'm not sure if this is a typo. It's felt good sexually it's, she writes, it siding feel good sexually or bad for that matter, but it was more the idea. I'm not sure what she meant there. Probably the auto translator from her phone. Now looking back on all of this, I don't really know who I'm more disgusted with. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, she had a physically and a verbally abusive boyfriend. And she writes, um, after we split up, I met my now husband. He's highly intelligent, a true gentleman, a talented musician, and the sort of caring soul who would pull over on the interstate during rush hour to save a bleeding, limping dog. I suppose I took him for granted because now he's so much about, about, because now there's so much about him I miss. In just a few years, he has become anxious and depressed. He quickly grew paranoid, cold, irritable, and sometimes verbally vicious and angry. Where he once opened doors for me, at best he is now indifferent, and at worst I can be very, and at worst can be very emotionally abusive. He doesn't even hold back in public, making quote jokes that family, friends, and acquaintances told me made them uncomfortable. He has called me every hurtful thing imaginable, but at least has the decency not to call me fat since he knows about my struggles with bulimia. Speaking as someone who has been in both situations, sometimes I wish he would just hit me and get it over with. He seems to think that by not touching me, he is better than my ex, but it actually hurts more, especially because I know he was fine and happy before I came into his life. Wow, there is a lot to unpack there. And I don't know whether he has a mental illness, you know, that needs medicating or trauma processing, or if he is it used the charm to lure you in, as abusive narcissists can do sometimes. And the, but the only thing you have control over is whether or not you stay in that, and. That is the thing to to focus on. And it really sounds like your needs, and this is an understatement, are not being met in this situation. And growing up in an abusive 
environment, it's, it's like brainwashing, you know, you, you are brainwashed to be grateful for crumbs and to think the crumbs are a banquet. Any positive experiences with the abusers? With the teacher? No. With my ex-boyfriend? Yes. Many. Is it stupid to say he treated me well? Except for the black eyes, he treated me like a princess. Wow. Except for the black eyes, he treated me like a princess. That is the most concise definition of an abusive narcissist behavior. That has got to be such a mindfuck when you're holding on to the belief that that person is going to change and become the person they were when you first met him. He never made me feel bad about myself. Compare that to my husband, an all-around, quote, nice guy. My husband, but your husband is not a nice guy. Your husband is abusive. Just because he was a nice guy in the beginning doesn't excuse his behavior. My husband used to make me feel respected, intelligent, beautiful, and treasured. And now he makes me feel like the worst possible disgusting scum he has ever encountered. Since there once was a better, doesn't that mean there's potential for it to be good again? I seriously doubt it. And hanging on in the hopes that that will happen is a way of abandoning yourself and living in a state of insanity. You know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Oh, darkest thoughts. Recently, as my husband keeps starting fights, I finally started moving beyond the stabbing sadness and I've started getting angry. I sometimes think of ways I could make him hurt. Nothing violent or anything serious, just maybe some diarrhea, maybe even Miralax. Uh, uh, maybe just some diarrhea, but even Miralax isn't tasteless. It's horrifying to even have those, have even thought those things. I'm a healthcare professional. I'm not supposed to think that. And that to me is a great example of the ways that we can start to cope when we feel trapped and aren't willing to t take our power back as we start doing passive-aggressive, sneaky shit. And that's the end. Uh, she didn't fill out any more of the survey, but that... that um, oh, she described her... The environment she was raised in as stable and safe. Mm. Thank you for that. That was that was intense. And this next one is intense as well. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself codependent mom to eight. She identifies as bi. She's in her 40s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. I uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was 16, I snuck out of the house with my best friend and her brother. We went to one of their co-workers' hotel rooms slash apartment. He was 28 and got us drunk and high. He kicked them out as I lay on his crappy bed, completely out of it, mouthing, help me, to my BFF. He locked the door. 
I ended up losing my virginity that night while my BFF and her brother sat outside on the stairs in the winter. I remember how disgusted I felt. And this, this next uh, sentence is, is, I debated whether or not to, to read this, but my feeling is that it's important sometimes for the details of things to be read because it helps people who haven't experienced that understand the ripples of the abuse that they suffer, that people often think that it's just the thing that happened that is the bad thing. But oftentimes it's the ripples of that that keep fucking with them that makes their lives so difficult. And the sentence is, I remember how disgusted I felt, how the hot shower and his cum smell filled the shower. The reason I wanted to read that because my initial inclination was like, yeah, that's a little over the top. I don't want to, uh, I don't want this, this seem, you know, I don't want to sensationalize this. But for one, it's what she wrote. And two, that to me is a great example of the things that can then trigger us for the rest of our life. Imagine that's your first time experiencing that smell. Well, then every time you have sex after that, it takes you back to that moment. And that to me, those are the moments that I think are important to include in this podcast as hard as they are to hear because that is a part that is a part of what people have to battle after they've experienced that. I regretted it. It wasn't fun or enjoyable like Hollywood and porn portrayed. What's worse is I went back the next night. I have felt extreme guilt and sorrow from that choice. That man was a pedophile. And that's really common for people to try to convince themselves that they weren't hurt by staying in a relationship or hanging out with that person again. So... Do not blame yourself for that. Our brains cope with trauma in really, really baffling ways. She's been emotionally abused. My mother was a control freak, classic helicopter mom. She had depression, anxiety, and projected all of her experiences on me. I recall at 12, I wanted to go to the movies with my eighth grade classmates. My mom screamed at me that I was going to be giving hand jobs and blow jobs in the back row. I didn't even know those sexual acts by name. She slapped me across the face and called me a whore. I decided that from then on, I'd reject any offers from classmates and quickly became the weird who was the target for bullying. My stepfather constantly farted on me, teasing me until I popped off with a, quote, smart mouth and ended up with him beating me. He tormented me and kicked me out of the house, throwing my shit on the curb, quote, in the name of Christ. Christ was a big believer in throwing people's shit to the curb. I think you remember when he dumped the leper's suitcase out into the thoroughfare the Roman thoroughfare. <sighs> What's worse, I ended up getting into a marriage with a man who played constant mind games and gaslighted me, molested our firstborn, and eventually raped me. I divorced him in March of 2016 after 22 years of marriage, a union I questioned from the beginning and endured silently, keeping all of his nasty secrets for fear of my cult family finding out. That might be the 
most densely packed paragraph of trauma I have read in the 10 years of doing this podcast. That That is, wow. Any positive experiences with the abuser? I only feel grief about my experiences. I don't know what to do. I went to a therapist who helped me open up and make the decision to leave my abusive marriage, but I've been struggling ever since. First of all, kudos on getting the fuck out of that marriage. Um, And the thing that I would say is um, there are still all those feelings to be processed. You know, we can get out of toxicity, but all of that stuff is still trapped in our brain, in our, the cells of our body. And, you know, there are some modalities for healing like EMDR that can be really, really powerful. Support groups can be really powerful. And I, I think that's the next phase of your, well, I hate the word journey, but your journey, man. Um, that stuff's got to be processed and that has got to be so fucking hard because you have shared some really, really intense shit. Darkest thoughts. I've held a butcher knife to my stepfather's back. I wanted to do it, uh, but thought how terribly sad my stepbrothers would feel and instead poured dish soap into the honey he used for his coffee. Darkest secrets. I was fascinated by sex at a young age. I recall looking at a stack of pornographic magazines which stood taller than me. I was maybe four or five. And licking the pages where women were getting licked. Gross. I wanted to be those women. I recall using my Christmas dolly at perhaps four years old, humping its face and forcing it into my labia. I had my first orgasm in the bathtub. Uh, I was always feeling, quote, dirty afterwards. I also taught my cousin to hump me, and in fourth grade, I had two sisters over for a sleepover, and we played a game we called rape, where one of us would lay on the other girl and hump her and say, you like that? How about this? Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be fucked by a hot woman. I want her to pleasure me and love me without any expectations of reciprocation. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I've told my parents to fuck off. I left their cult. In return, they spread lies about me to our extended family and all have retracted from me. I'm raising eight children from my cult marriage on a 10 50 an hour job i'm on welfare and i'm barely making my house payments i want to tell everyone in my family the truth but they won't believe me because of my mom's lies i also fantasize about having sex in public what if anything do you wish for i want to be self-sufficient my kids need nothing and in a safe environment with a supportive gentle partner Have you shared these things with others? I've picked and chosen what to share. I can't really trust many people. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel broken. I feel like an idiot having put up with so much shit. I've been a victim far too long. I'm sick of it. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? Meditation and believe in yourself. Hurt people hurt people. Uh, and she wants to know if there are any episodes where people have escaped from a cult. Um, yes, uh, Derek Block um, and Scientology is one. Uh, Glenn Washington is another one. 
Um, all right. Oh, uh, this would be a good time to mention, if you guys are ever looking for a particular subject matter for the podcast, the best way is to actually Google uh, any keywords and the word mental pod, and that will call up the episodes that match that criteria. It's actually, I think, probably easier than going to the website and doing a search there, or at least it's faster. Man, that was that was fucking heavy, and I appreciate you diving back into all of that shit, because I know there's somebody who's listening who feels less alone, and I just, uh, my heart goes out to you. This is from the Happy Moments, filled out by uh, Brule, who we heard from earlier, who identifies as non-binary. And um, this actually could be in the love survey, but uh, they write, Experiencing complete acceptance and love from my partner without expectation or guilt. Knowing I'm supported and loved, regardless of my past, even the parts of my childhood trauma that I haven't divulged due to shame. When my dogs look at me with complete admiration and love, and I know that they trust me fully, despite previous abuse from bad humans. Watching old classic movies. Feeling inspired no matter how brief the experience is or what I'm able to produce. Sleeping well, deeply, and late. Having vivid dreams, guessing what they might mean. Being out in nature and having the moment of complete peace, being blissfully one with everything around me, and feeling that vastness of universal beauty. Knowing that nature is messy, perverse, backwards, primal, metaphorical, and indicative of human nature. Tending to my houseplants. Looking through old, old journals and analyzing old mindsets. Cooking a meal that's delicious and healthy and sharing it with my loved one. Being able to connect with others, even in limited interactions. Brief moments of sentience and clarity amid my bipolar swings. Wow, those are fucking great. And then finally, this is from the Love Survey, filled out by Forehead. And they write, this one's a bit of a bittersweet love, but I love how much I've grown and healed over the last year, even through all the chaos. I used to listen to your podcast and sob every week. Now I hate and love that I can hardly relate except as though remembering a recurring dream I used to have. That is music to my ears. That is when when the feelings around the stuff that have caused us pain begin to change. You know, uh, it's like being let out of prison. It really is. I hope this uh, this time of year isn't crushing your souls too badly. I bought a, a therapy light uh, for seasonal affective disorder, which I've ignored for the past 10 years, and finally decided I, I needed to get back into... Uh, doing the light therapy again in the morning slash afternoon since I get up around noon. And I feel like it's helping. I do feel a little uh, more energized. I mean, I still get up at noon and take a nap again at from four to six, but I feel, I feel like it's helping. And um, 
if you're out there and you're struggling, uh, man, you are not alone. You are so not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.